Tune in. Tune in. Tune in. It's the power of the game. It's the power of the game. It's the power of the game podcast by Golf Saudi. Hello and welcome along to another episode of the Power of the Game podcast with myself, Robbie Greenfield. My guest in this episode is the CEO of the Ladies European Tour. Her name is Alex Armas. And this has been a really interesting couple of years for both women's golf, their relationship with Golf Saudi and the Ladies European Tour in particular. We've seen recently a massive announcement take place, the Aramco Team Series, which is going to span four different countries, culminating in Saudi Arabia. It's going to travel to New York, to London, to Singapore. It'll finish at the Royal Greens Golf Club just north of Jeddah. And each of those events in a team format is going to boast a $1 million purse. Huge momentum for both women's golf and the ladies European tour. And that was one of the key things that I wanted to discuss with Alex during this podcast. She comes from a very interesting background. She started as a player. She spent four years playing on the tour and then she went into the administrative side of things and she's now leading a new vision for the future of both the ladies European tour and helping to contribute to a much more healthier and prosperous future for ladies golf in general. Let's get straight to it then. I caught up with Alex and I had to ask her how that transition from being a professional golfer went for her in those early years as she graduated to a position on the Ladies European Tour. Yeah, so from my perspective, my journey in golf um, started, I guess, as, as uh, for many people through, I, I did a lot of sport. Um, I enjoyed doing sport as a, as, as a kid. I was playing a lot of tennis and then, um, you know, golf became popular. And so then my parents transitioned from, from playing tennis into, into golf. Um, and that's, uh, you know, obviously dragged, dragged the children along. Um, and, and that's how I, how I got started. And then from there, um, I met a very good group of friends of my age, 10, 11 year olds. Um, and for the next, you know, six, seven, eight years until, until we left, um, we became, and we're still fr- very much friends, but that was kind of my gang. Um, and we used to just to hang out at the golf course. Um, and that's what, you know, that's what we would do all, every weekend. We were um, let go at the golf course. And, and I mean, I think that's, a, you know, a good message from my experience in, in making golf courses uh, family friendly, how important that is and how helpful it is to bring new families and new people into the game. Um, because, you know, it, it is a, it's a very family-friendly sport and it allows itself, but if you have all these restrictions for kids and you have to be here or there or you can't play, then it just, it just prevents their parents from also playing. So um, that was my experience. That was my playground growing up. Um, and then I showed some, some promise and uh, I started playing in the club team, then started played for Spain for many, many years, went to college on a golf scholarship um, and continued with my, with my studies and all of that. And then at one stage, yeah, decided to, to also give uh, playing pro um, a chance. And I was on the Lady European tour. Uh, and what was that like? Was that a straightforward process getting onto the tour and, and actually gaining your playing rights for that LET season? Um, my, my, I mean, my journey was slightly different to maybe a lot of players that were coming off, you know, their, their kind of amateur uh, playing top level amateur golf. Um, I quit golf after college. I got an economics degree and then my uh, my master's degree. And so I stopped playing for two years. And it was only when I um, started commuting into London to do the real world stuff uh, that I thought, mm, I'm not sure I'm quite ready. Not sure I'm quite ready for this yet. And I get golf out of the crack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might, I might just pull out those golf clubs again and see how that goes. So I, I, I pretty much handed in my thesis. I went to Q school that that. Um, 
that that week, the following week, uh, and it was just on the you know on the kind of the idea of like I'm gonna go if I get my card, I'll give it a try. If not, then okay, I guess I'll have to stick to the real world. And uh, um, luckily, uh, I, I managed to to get my card and uh, and and played on tour, and and it was an amazing experience. Something that you I, must, yeah. You must have had a heck of a lot of talent, Alex, just to kind of like on a on a whim, just go. You know what? I'm just gonna give golf a crack and then qualify automatically to get your card because. It's not yeah. easy, is it? It's not easy. <laughs> no, it's not easy. No, it, it really isn't. There's only 30 cards every every year from all the players that go. Um, and yeah, maybe it was luck. Maybe it is. You know how it is when you kind of pick up the clubs after you've stopped playing for a while and and you don't carry that baggage of like, oh, I missed that putt yesterday and I sliced it right there and all of these kind of things. Maybe it was a bit of that. Maybe it was just no pressure because I really did go without any expectation. Um, so there were probably some learnings there that I should have carried into my professional career. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it was, it was a combination of potentially, you know, luck and, uh, um, and, and a bit of me- muscle memory that might've helped me through it. Uh, you were, you were on the tour, I think for four, four seasons, if I'm not mistaken, 2001 yeah. through to 2005. What are, what are some of your favorite highlights when you look back of, uh, during that time? Uh, did it, did it always feel like it wasn't quite for you or, what was your kind of end takeaway from your time on the tour? So for, for me personally, I said I, I turned pro and just as a, you know, I, in my mind, I was all, it wasn't going to be my kind of long term career. I, I love the game. I'm passionate about the game. I enjoy I enjoyed playing it, but I didn't see myself as that being kind of my uh, for me personally, my, my um, career future, long term future. Um, so it was always something, you know, as, as other opportunities you know, came up or, or were happening, I was always interested in, in, and curious uh, about them. But, um, you know, I, I think as, as I, when I was playing, you know, and I will say it's probably, it's one of, it probably is the hardest job ever, <laughs> but it is the most, um, the, the kind of the most special, like the best job I've ever had, um, as hard as it was, to be honest. Um, and, and kind of, you know, that, the, the, the challenge of trying to um, to perform at the highest level every every week and it's in your hands. I mean, and that's what golf is really is you personally with the golf ball and trying to do the best and um, and how frustrating and then how rewarding um, just one shot might be <laughs> in within the context of, of you know, your career. Um, it, it is it's an emotional roller coaster, but there's not many things um that give you that sort of level of um, of emotional attachment as, as trying to compete as a as an elite athlete, I think. Yeah. No, I mean I, I wouldn't know, unfortunately, <laughs> but I can only imagine how. I guess it it, it takes a, a special kind of person and someone who, I suppose, the one thing that a lot of golfers admit to is that they they look back on their time as certainly golfers who have, have finished their playing days. They look back and go, well. You know, I was extremely self-absorbed because I had to be. I had to. Everything had to revolve around my career and my aspirations. And and some people just aren't cut out to be that sort of egocentric in a way, to be that single-minded and and you know to to block out everything else in life that 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 gets in the way of them playing their best golf. I mean, it is. I mean, as I say, my my professional career was 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 quite short, and obviously went um, and I took another path. Um, soon after but uh you know to be able to to persevere to make a living from it to to be successful at it it is you know one of the things of the hardest thing it, it is a lonely it's very lonely it's very tough it's you um and uh, you know if you do it doesn't go 
right? You're the only one to blame. Um, you know, sports people are really, really tough on themselves. And, and absolutely, that is that mental strain, but that men mental commitment is, is what is required to be able to succeed. Um, and, it, and it's tough. What about your, the way that your playing days have informed your, your role in, in the administrative side of things? Because I think 2008, you, were, you joined as the executive director of the, the LET and you, you did four years before going on to some other business interests of, of your own. But did that kind of, did, did playing on the tour and, and getting the insight of what it was like to be a professional golfer, did that inform how, how you, you viewed the sort of leadership qualities of, of what was required when it comes to, to taking the tour in the right direction? Yeah, I would say so. So no, I joined as a CEO in 2005. So pretty much was straight off the golf course into, into the role because I was on the board previous to that. Um, and I was there for, for um, almost eight years. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, and, and I would say absolutely. Um, having been uh, inside the ropes uh, help, helped me then and still helps me now. Um, it's, you know, it kind of, it is difficult because, I guess the, the, the biggest thing is people that work in sports are often in awe of the sports or the athletes or the glamour side of what it, what is portrayed. You know, everybody thinks that, you know, you know, footballers or tennis players have, you know, the perfect life. They're traveling the world. And, but that's only like, you know, the minuscule number of athletes that really make it there. There is a whole load of potentials that don't quite ever um, get to that level and and their stories are the ones that are you know make up the game genuinely because it's you know so few that do absolutely live the, the perfect life um, and kind of understanding that it gives context to what the Leisure European Tour is actually about and what we're actually about is is to try and give uh, the widest platform possible for as many players possible to try and you know make a living from their own talent from competing in golf um, and, and, and that, I think, is something that, you know, is, it has to always be present in what we do. Um, you know, there's all the other elements. There is a lot of glamour. There is a lot of traveling. But to the core of it, we're just um, a vehicle for these players to be able to, to be the best they can be. Yeah, you've kind of answered my next question, because I, I was going to ask your, for your overall vision for the, the Ladies European Tour. Has it, has it been consistent, Alex, since you sort of, obviously, as you say, you've been involved with the tour for so many years now. Has it evolved with the times? Has it, has it been something, a mantra that you've kind of held up there for, for an awfully long time? From my perspective, and obviously I was there, and then there's this, in between, there's probably about eight years that I wasn't involved. Um, and it may have had a slightly different direction then. Um, from my involvement then and, and my kind of returning back to the tour now, um, it is very much about about what the core is. Uh, there is all these other elements that we have to bring into the mix about, you know, television coverage and maximizing other opportunities through commercial revenues, um, you know, media and digital and giving these players a profile, but all that leads to just growing the tour. So ultimately our players can make the best living possible. So if we, if we don't keep that core, everything else can get very um, distracting. Um, um, but if you don't have kind of what is that all feeding back to, then it's very easy to lose your way and say, oh, well, we've got great numbers in, in our media platforms. Or, but if it's not feeding back to growing actually the tour and the game and the playing opportunities, then it's, it's, not, really, um, it's not really progressing us as a tour. 
How much has the tour changed in the 20 years since you played on it back in 2001 to, to where it's at right now? Obviously, a lot has happened, particularly in the last couple of years that have affected things greatly. But how much has the tour changed? And, and women's sport in general has made great strides in those last 20 years. Obviously, we've seen with things like football and the huge levels of interest in the, the FIFA Women's World Cup a couple of years ago really did just, I think it spoke to a, a real kind of milestone for, for women's sport. Is golf capitalizing on that momentum, would you say? Yeah, so kind of the two sides to that, that question, I think, how has golf changed in the last um, 20 years? It's changed a lot. I mean, I think from the perspective, it's become a lot more global. Um, we're not only playing everywhere around the world, um, but also the, the, the players themselves are com coming from all lots of new different countries that before didn't even have golf courses or, or, or players. Um, so the globalization of the, of the game um, at the highest level. Um, and I think that the second one, obviously, we've become a lot more, more professional. There's a lot more understanding. The, the golf courses, um, the quality of the golf courses have all developed. So the game itself has all, um, all, all progressed. Um, and, and I would say the, um, the, the second question was about the women's sports. Um, I think the, the growth in women's sports is, is an understanding that, you know, it's, it's a social change, isn't it? And to a certain extent, yeah. it's societal that has helped us a lot um, in, you know, the, the perception of, you know, the world has to change and, and realize that women are a key part of society. We are 50%. Um, that in the workplace, there is a movement to that equality. Um, and I think the more that, that is being integrated into sports, the more that we have visibility in women's sports, say with, with women's soccer, um, that, we that people are starting to realize like, oh, wow, you know, we're not kind of bad athletes or there is this just, you know, I guess, understanding in general that, you know, women's sport is not as, is not as good. They're not as athletic. There is not worth watching. It's, and, and I think the, the fact that we get that more visible is showing and making people change their mind. I think, you know, the Women's World Cup England team for the, the women's team, when they played, they just, you know, everybody kind of was really cheering for the first time, you know, and, and I don't think anyone thought it's like, oh, well, it's women's, women's football, you know, it's just like, it's England and they're, um, and they're doing really well. So um, I think all of that has, has helped. So there's a mixture of societal, you know, the corporate world also appreciating it and, and a general understanding of how good uh, women's sports is there's a there's a tribalism certainly in men's football that has existed for years and what I found really interesting about the women's world cup to come back to that was you know the example of the U.S. player Alex Morgan you know taking the mick out of the England team by it, it was such a, a small thing but it, it had huge media coverage when she simulated that she was drinking tea after scoring against England it seemed to send the entire UK into a into a tailspin um, and I thought it was really interesting because that's not what you would typically associate with female sports stars. You wouldn't associate that kind of level of competitive aggression or needle or even if it's just something as seemingly trivial as just doing a celebration like that. When you have someone like Megan Rapinoe making very outspoken remarks at award ceremonies and, and actually being quite, quite aggressive in underlining the, the, the points that she feels that, you know, women's sport is continually demeaned in that respect that's important. And yet that's a whole cultural shift, isn't it? And I suppose female sports stars can play their own part in, in sort of forcing that shift over the line. 
I mean, so I, it, it is important to have, um, you know, the and it, and not and I understand not everybody is suited for it or, or or wants to be kind of in the limelight or and take the the burden of pushing the bar for um, equality in their sport or women's sports. Um, but some athletes, you know, as you say, Alex and and, and Megan and um, you know Serena Williams, they're you know they're kind of said okay. We'll, we'll we'll take it on. We'll 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 you know move move the bar. Um, and I think that it, it does it does help um, when when the athletes are outspoken. And I think you know as you say the tea drinking um, kind of it, it happens all the time. That kind of banter in in sports in men's sports is kind of more accepted. You say maybe two people are surprised, but the fact that people reacted to it it just showed how much it meant. You know, normally yeah. there would be no like, oh, dismissive, or did you hear, uh, you know, like a side comment. But the fact that people were impassioned because of that, it just showed that it was really reaching people, you know, more to, more than just, you know, a kind of side comment. They were actually invested in the game. And the Solheim Cup has, has had a couple of instances of that as mm -hmm. well, where, you know, that there has been competition as intense as it, as it is, has, has really kind of bubbled to a, to a sort of boiling point. I'm sure when those instances have happened, Alex, you've noticed a massive spike in in interest in 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 sort of media viewership figures and kind of general kind of if you would like impressions, you know, interest in the game, eyeballs on the game. I'm sure those moments have really kind of uh, been catalysts in that respect. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, so it's um, you know, sometimes sometimes good for you know the per reasons like Suzanne Pedersen making that part on the last hole of the of the last day to win the Solheim yeah. Cup. Versus, you know, um, a ruling controversy or, um, but, you know, all of those things just then transcend just the general, just the kind of the golfing fan and go into the, into the sports fan. And I know so many people that never even watch golf um, or even know any of the players. So there's no, um, that they, they did watch that Solheim Cup on that final day when they started to kind of understand what was going on and how close it was. Um, and that's, you know, that's where team things like by nationality um, help because you already, you know, you already have a side. <laughs> so, you know, if you don't yeah. know the players, it's a lot harder, but if you're, you know, if it's kind of, uh, you know, if you're European or American or, or whether it's, um, you know, an, a national uh, that you'll look for your flag and be like, Oh, you know, I'll, I'll support that player. Then, then that it always helps to get, you know, a lot more people just buy into it, buy into it. How much has social media changed things? Because obviously the players now are the, they are their own promotional agents. They're not relying on a platform to do the promoting for them. They're not relying as much on sponsors, although I'm sure they're, they're continuing to be very important as, as, as part of the sort of players overall profile. The fact is that they can now jump on Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, and they can, they can say what they're, what's on their mind. They can, they can paint the picture that they want to paint of themselves and, and their careers and their lives as well. How much has, has that empowerment changed the popularity of, of women's sport and the kind of elevation of these stars onto the pedestal that, that I think is important for, for really kind of inspiring youngsters to take up the game? I think, I mean, for, for women's sports, um, I think it's, it's hugely important and it has been um, a game changer to a certain extent. You know, the, the, the biggest challenge why uh, women's sports struggle with um, with sponsorship or events is because we just struggle to deliver the media value um, that is dominated by men's sports. Um, and I think still the coverage on television of female sports versus male sports is, you know, 
huge disparity. And, and obviously, to be able to get the, the investment into the game, you're going to have to have a lot more visibility. Um, in the traditional mediums like television, um, we're still going to be quite a, lo a long, long way down the pecking order to get the coverage. Um, but with new, with new technologies, uh, with social media, digital platforms, um, players also being able to do their own, uh, their own content, um, that helps uh, and evens out a little bit um, the ability of women's sports to get exposure without having to rely on, on huge costly productions um, and then competing with, with other bigger sports. I mean, it's still essential and it's still a big, big part, but that shift um, definitely helps. Um, gives us visibility. I mean, I see even in our commercial discussions with, with, with the sponsors and with the events, um, it's a lot more about um, how do we get more digital activation? That is now like, you know, it is about, okay, we're having this event. Well, how can we use this to create content that is going to generate, you know, just digital activation? It's not so much about, okay, let's get it broadcast in this, this, and this country. It is absolutely more looking into digital platforms. So it's um so there's definitely a natural shift also from also the the, the corporate side. Um, but it helps us as a tour to to um, showcase ourselves um, without the you know I guess uh, uh, waiting on the on the big TV channels to show us. Sure. Uh, listen, they're, they're up against it because there's so many different platforms and so many different ways that people can consume content now that the space mm. is becoming that much more competitive as well. But speaking of digital activations, you know, a couple of years ago, the, the, the lady European tour golfers who appeared in that video at Qadir with the, the, the sort of landscape of Saudi Arabia, could you ever have envisaged, Alex, that the, the ladies European tour um, would, would, would develop such a strong partnership in Saudi Arabia of all places, a, a place that had never had a professional golf tournament until a couple of years ago, that only hosted its first Saudi international men's event back in 2019. And yet here it is, one of the most significant backers, I assume, of the ladies' European tour. Has that kind of blown your mind a little bit? It's an interesting one. Yeah, if you'd said uh, a few years ago, or even, you know, probably slightly over a year, um, you know, that that we would become such a strong, strong, such strong partners. Um, I probably would have, you know, been like, really? I mean, it, normally these things take a little bit more time. They're only kind of, you know, starting in golf at the moment. And, um, but as soon as I met the team in Golf Saudi, um, I saw that, um, you know, their passion, their belief, their vision for, the, for, for the, where they want to take um, Saudi Arabia, where they want to take the game and how all this fits into a wider plan. It's, you know, it's not something that uh, was just happening because of, you know, it was the right kind of thing to do because everybody mm. else was doing it. It's there's not a publicity stunt. No, there's definitely a, a plan in place and a, um, and a very well thought out plan. Um, and as soon as I got to, um, to meet them and, and discuss about, uh, about, you know, starting with just the one event, um, it felt right. It felt like we have, you know, very natural synergies. We're, you know, passionate about the game. We want to inspire new generations into, into, into the game. And that's how our players feel too. They want to, they want to grow the game. They want to make sure that, um, you know, the game that gives them uh, so much that other people have the opportunity. Um, so 
it's it, it felt quite natural whether you know so quickly we'd get to this um i think it's, it's a combination of things probably one being a positive on the back of covid uh, you know there's like is there any positives there potentially is a few and that and kind of that you know that relationship and that um kind of bonding over those two events at the end of last year um and you know the reception that they had just completely blew our minds you know how in how many people were following on this on the social media within saudi arabia where there's um you know there's five thousand golfers and the and the live stream had like twenty thousand or something it was wow. ludicrous yeah ludicrous numbers of, of people watching and, and the ladies first club uh you know that got you know some oversubscribed within four days um you know and i think kind of there is a natural a kind of a natural progression there on this partnership of, of where we are you know in a way we're um still kind of the younger the younger tour in that we're not as established as of as some of the, of the other uh, as the other golf tours um they want to grow the game we have kind of that um more innovative approach um and i think it just it, it just worked uh, so it's a combination of, of factors and just prior to that, because I know that I appreciate last year was, you know, it was so challenging on, on so many levels for, for every single person. I think um, obviously we all had different experiences, but but it brought challenges across the board in, in sport and elsewhere. And, and obviously in, in industry in general, it was it was a really tough year. And, and I know that the LET had its had its struggles in supporting the players. And as you mentioned, the Saudi Arabia partnership is something that was hugely positive that came out of 2020. But the year before that, there was an agreement made with the, the LPGA Tour, which, which when I see it, I think it's significant because you imagine two rival tours and actually something similar has happened with the, the European Tour and the, the, the PGA Tour in the men's game. There's been a, a tie-up. What, what, what motivated it from your side, Alex, that, that, that agreement with the LPGA Tour? Was it to safeguard the future of the LET? It is. I mean, you know, and funnily, that's it was a, a pre-COVID, uh, a pre-COVID idea. And thank goodness that it did happen when it happened. Um, you know, I've always kind of believed that uh, women's golf needs to be unified. Uh, one thing that golf is is extremely fragmented, uh, which never made much sense to me. And as you say, you'd think on on um, on the surface that we should be competing, but we actually aren't. We never were. I mean, there is no comparison. The LPGA is established is where it is. It's based mainly the US. Um, and uh, and the, the fact that people think that we're competing or that we would even want to compete, we're much stronger working, working and collaborating together because our competitors are genuinely, well, you know, other sports or other entertainment businesses where, where you know, where we want to try and attract sponsorship from. Yeah. So, you know, there's no point in us kind yeah. of short, short selling ourselves against each other when ultimately we want those big, those big sponsors to come to golf instead of going to football or to tennis or to wherever it is. Those are actually, um, you know, where we have to position ourselves. Yeah. I mean, what's the point of infighting, right? If, uh, as you say, there's, there's a lot competition among sports is as high as it's ever going to be. It's ever been, I should say, and I'm sure it's only going to intensify. So yeah, absolutely. Stronger, stronger together. It's a, it's a shame that the, uh, the UK didn't heed that advice when it comes to, to Brexit, but we won't talk about that. No, exactly. Um, no, let's not go there. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, but no, talking about how these new series, I want to, I want to know a bit more about the concept behind the team, the team series. I know amateurs are going to be involved in that. And uh, 
how will this relationship with the LPGA affect playing opportunities in what are very big money events? There's a million dollar purse for these, uh, this new Aramco team series that's going to be launching, I think, New York, I think London, uh, Singapore, culminating at the Royal Greens Golf Club just north of Jeddah. It's so exciting, Alex, because it's not just a new format, but it's, it's $4 million worth of investment from Aramco and, and Golf Saudi put straight into the LET. Is the LPGA going to be involved in that? I mean, at the moment, the partnership is with the LET. Uh, obviously, we have a close relationship with the LPGA, and the LPGA are, are hugely supportive and um, and and excited for, for this opportunity for, for the LET. I mean, as you said, you know, that I didn't touch on earlier, one of the reasons why this partnership with the LPGA was to safeguard the LET, but to give playing opportunities that were dwindling for, for uh, the European players. And it's hugely important for the LPGA that there is still that... Um, you know, the kind of the future talents are still able to, able to compete at the highest level and are still coming through and are still making, you know, the majors and are still um, playing in the Sohan Cup teams. And, and so that was kind of, you know, because of, of, of the LET losing tournaments, that was one of the concerns. So, you know, the, these, these events are a, a perfect example of, of kind of, you know, setting the bar that much higher than the players. And, you know, it's, it's opportunities for everyone. So basically... Um, LET players, whether they play in whether they play in, in the US, whether they play in Japan, wh wherever they you know they, they they can participate, and I think they'll be hugely uh, hugely attractive to to a lot of players. Um, and it's just going to make those tournaments you know, that more competitive, and it is going to drive the quality of the of, of the players. So it's uh, it's an integral part from, you know, as, um, as an, a, an incredible concept of four events in four continents, um, you know, amateurs getting up close and personal with, you know, with the kind of the business at hand of, of how, what it is like to play these tournaments. I'm quite intimidating um, environment yeah. too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't want a, <laughs> a six foot putt that actually meant something for a professional. That's for sure. So, yeah, so I'm it's, sure. Um, yes, yeah, so it's all, it's kind of, exactly. So it's going to be, you know, it's got so many angles to it um, that I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting. So it's good for the game and it's, and it's great as a, yeah, for us, but I think for the wider game of, of what it's going to do. There's been a lot of talk for a long time, Alex, about how golf needs to, as you mentioned, it's, it's fragmented from a sort of a governing perspective, but also when it comes to actually formatting, you know, 72 hole stroke play events, not really conducive for people who have busy lives who might not necessarily have four hours to sit on the sofa and watch a full round of golf. So these kind of new formats that have come in, whether it be the super sixes or, or more team geared towards formats, we've seen what the Solheim cup can do, what the Ryder cup has done as well. That generates excitement in itself. So in terms of this format, is this a big part of golf's future? Do you think? I think there's an, a number of you saying it's it's not kind of one way is going to necessarily be right for everyone. Um, so it's it it is I think the 72 hole uh, cut you know full field that is you know in the end it's you know our responsibility is to um, to to get as many players as possible to to compete um, because we're we represent a membership group, um, but. That, that has to be also interacted with um, with these new concepts and different ideas and um, and new formats uh, and and I think that's that's essential because 
to be able to grow the game beyond the existing fans, it has to be. It has to be slightly different. And I think that's one of the things that COVID also has to has brought into all sports. We have to think differently about the game. It's not going to be just so easy to pick up where we left off. It, we have to be more innovative. We have to look at different ways of making it appealing. Um, I know, for example, you know, that the one thing is most federations, in, in, at least in Europe, because um, they have been allowed to play golf, participation has gone, you know, you know increased incredibly on most, oh, has. in most countries. So now they have to think about ways once the world goes back to normal, they have to think of ways of like, how do we keep, you know, these people that have just picked up whether they were golfers before or they've just started keep them engaged and not lose them again once kind of the world gets hectic again and we're all kind of back in offices. Um, so that there is all these things that we have to all consider that, you know, it's easy to stay in, in the kind of the same momentum, same traditions while things are kind of working. But this, you know, major shakeup is definitely leading for us to look at things um, differently. Yeah, you're absolutely right, by the way. There's definitely, in, in Dubai, there's been a huge spike of interest in golf. Mm -hmm. I know that that's been the case in the UK as well. I think people have, obviously, people who were golfers have missed it and have realized how much it means to them. And it's also opened up a new avenue for people who've never tried it before, who who can actually do, in, in a relatively open space and a relatively safe environment, go out and try something new as well. So it's in many ways an opportunity for the game as well. Even as difficult as it's been, there there are opportunities inside this sort of uh, what I'm sure we could all agree has been a, a pretty torrid time. I mean, definitely. I think it's um, you know the, the fact that more people are are playing the game. I mean, that's you know that is kind of then generates more interest, then gets into um, hopefully also helps break some of the barriers of the game where it's been, you know, very specific socioeconomic background. Um, and, you know, and that's what the work that we have to do is to, to make it more accessible because it's, it is a, um, you know, a sport breaking after those barriers that everybody can do. As you say, it is an open space. It is, you know, it's not combative. It's not, um, not physical. So, you know, some women don't want to necessarily get sweaty or, or physical or do contact sports. Uh, so it, it is a sport that allows itself in many ways to, um, to draw in uh, lots of people from different age groups, from different backgrounds. This, this format, just curious, Alex, it, it's three professionals and one amateur for the, for the team event. Am I correct there? Yes, and what's the timeline for this? Because there's four events, obviously New York, London, Singapore, and then Saudi Arabia. I'm assuming the Saudi Arabia event will take place at roughly the same time of the year as it did last year, back in November. Yes, correct. When, when are the others? Have you, have you finalized the schedule yet as to when the others will slot in? We're, we're working on that, but we're looking at, um, I think it's May, May, July, and October. Okay. I think, yeah, I think those are the kind of the months we're looking at. Yeah. And will the teams be the same every single edition or will that change based on qualification rights and put and. Yeah. Initially parameters? at the moment. Yeah. At the initial moment. No. Um, the kind of the conversations that we had so far is that each event, because obviously you can't guarantee it'll be exactly the same field anyway, from one to the other. So it's mm -hmm. not, so it is, um, but we'll look at a way of, of ranking the players within those four events so there is a, a connectivity between them uh, but it's not the same team appearing in all four 
Okay. Um, because also, and there's difficulties, whether it is, you know, obviously they don't, might not be able to play or if you get an injury or whatever. So I think, um, but it, there's a kind of, the, there is a still a few, a few details and ideas uh, that we're, that we're going to work through um, sure. to make them, yeah, to kind of, uh, you know, make them exciting. And I, and I think because it is such a new concept, there's all these things um, that potentially will evolve as, as we, you know, we learned a lot from the last one um, that we will implement. And I'm sure that there'll be things that we'll keep feeding off uh, to make them better and better. Before I throw my name into the hat for amateur <laughs> participation into this, Alex, I'm sure I'm at the back of a very, very long queue. Is that at the discretion of the players? How, how are amateurs going to be selected for this? Will there be an amateur qualifying process for this? So at the, the, we're, we're um, responsible for, obviously, the professionals um, and our partners, Golf Saudi, are the ones that are going to decide on how, how the amateurs I need to, I need to knock on, so, I need yeah, to knock on exactly. their door. <laughs> so you need, to, you, you need to call them. Yeah, I'll be hounding them. I'll pass it on to them now. Yeah, <laughs> you, you passed the buck brilliantly yeah, there, yeah. Alex. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Listen, I can't wait to see it. I mean, I'm really looking forward to to watching it, and I'm sure it's going to be high octane. I'm sure it's going to be very, very exciting as well to watch teams battle it out and to see how that unfolds. Because obviously, we always love watching those team mm -hmm. events in in the Solheim and, and the Ryder Cup. Uh, I will let you go, but uh, I've got to ask you how the next couple of years look, Alex, in terms of a, an LET. It, it seems like this rough period, which of course we're still very much in the midst of this pandemic, that's not going to go anywhere anytime soon, but there feels like real momentum behind the LET right now. And it feels like the next couple of years are looking very, very promising. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I mean, besides kind of, you know, the struggles and challenges that COVID brings, just trying to put protocols in place and obviously, um, trying for play for the for the events to get you know the the value uh, of, of 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 a tournament under under the current restrictions, um, you know all the events that committed for last year that couldn't be played are coming back for this year. We're looking to announce the schedule at the end of next week, um, and it should be um, all going all going well. It should be the strongest schedule that uh, the LET has had. So um, it's looking good, and everybody's very positive. And coming back to to many countries that we hadn't been in a long time. Um, some new concepts and ideas. So uh, yeah, I'm excited. I'm looking. I'm looking forward to it. So um, yeah, um, if we we keep this momentum, and um, it should be a, a good few years ahead. And I'm sure Golf Saudi very much involved at the forefront of that. It's a, such an exciting new new announcement. I think it's going to create an awful lot of buzz. The the Aramco Aramco Team Series. So congratulations on on making that happen, Alex. And Look forward to catching up with you, hopefully sometime soon over here in the Middle East as well. Absolutely. Yeah, no, thank you. And uh, yeah, I can't wait till I can also uh, get on a plane and start seeing people in yeah. person. <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, Alex. It's always a pleasure having you and, and, uh, and chatting to you. And uh, I wish you all the luck for the rest of the season. Thanks, Robbie. A massive thank you to Alex Armas for joining us on the podcast. I think we can all agree, hugely exciting things happening on the horizon and right now for both women's golf and the ladies European tour as it pertains to their relationship with Golf Saudi. And we're excited to see how that develops. If you want to catch another episode of this podcast, just hit the subscribe button. You can follow the progress of Golf Saudi as well on golfsaudi.com on their social media handles. It's at golf underscore Saudi on both Twitter and Instagram. Do make sure you subscribe. Join us on another episode of the Power of the Game podcast. Until then, we'll catch you next time.